0: Welcome to Words Matter, Saturday, October 12, 2019. I'm Nick Hahn, your host for this broadcast. Today, we're going to read from a book that I'm working on. It's a book called Drone. It's the story of a young, beautiful Latino girl from a poverty-stricken barrio on the outskirts of Panama City. It's the story of how Casita was recruited by Interpol, the famous international investigation group headquartered in Europe. Casita would be known as a drone. Background. A drone is often preferred for missions that are too dull, dirty, or dangerous for manned aircraft. There are more slaves in the world today than at any other time in human history, an estimated 27 million in bondage across the globe, men, women, and children being exploited for manual and sexual labor against their will. Her name was Casita. She was 18, looked 14, and thought like 22. One of nine children from El Chirio, a poverty-stricken barrio On the outskirts of Panama City. Her brother, Javier, had been snatched from the streets six months earlier. He was nine years old and beautiful. Casita completed high school at the top of her class, spoke fluent English and Spanish with an advanced degree from the streets of El Charrillo. There she was known as a jefe mahir, boss woman. In the developed world, She would be a corporate CEO candidate, respected by her peers and feared by her competitors. Interpol, the world's largest international police organization, was recruiting undercover agents to infiltrate the dark world of human trafficking. Panama was well-known as an international hub for slave traders. They operated with impunity while local officials lined their pockets with the boodle from entrepreneurial traders. Casita was smart, street-savvy, and motivated, the perfect candidate for Interpol. They were looking for beautiful young women with her skills, and she was looking for Javier, a perfect match. Casita would be a drone. The graffiti was Spanish, neon colors highlighting varicose cracks covering the wall like an alcoholic's nose. The building smelled of urine and pot. There was a metal door with four bolt locks and a dirty sign. Keep out, private property. Trespassers will be prosecuted. The sign didn't say what happens to slave traders. The windows had frosted glass embedded with chicken wire. They swung out and up, like fake eyelashes, supported by notched adjustment bars. The factory building was on the near west side of Cleveland, an industrial area on the Cuyahoga River, known as The Flats. This building had a pedigree, a sweatshop garment factory, a warehouse for imported cheeses, and a crack den for teenage potheads. It was now headquartering Magic Slim. The only pimp in Cleveland with his own film studio, a training facility, and a dormitory fit for the Ivy League. Slim's girls came from nothing. Life in the building was a big improvement. Slim understood this very well. He knew about poverty, cold, and hunger. The west side of Chicago was his training ground. He would never go back. Life in his building was good and he was intended to make it better. He weighed a 140 pounds soaking wet. No one knew what held his pants up. He would just say, it's magic, and the name stuck. Chapter 1. Slim. I was born and raised on the southwest side of Chicago. My father was a Rastafarian pothead who walked out on us when I was two. My mother Juanita worked nights cleaning office buildings to make ends meet for my three younger sisters and me. She did a little hooking on the side. The latter was more profitable. She worked Rush Street on weekends. Her pimp promoted her as the best trick in the loop. Most clients agreed, at least the sober ones. Juanita could do 10 to 15 tricks a night without complaining. The average time with a client was 15 to 30 minutes depending on services rendered. Pimp, he never mentioned his name, took care of Juanita, often paying her a performance bonus. There was competition on the street. Pimps would entice the better performers to join their stable of for a bigger cut or access to the better corners. Top girls were often tattooed with the pimp's initials. Branding was catching on. But Juanita refused to let Pemp put his stylized P in red, white, and blue anywhere on her body. Some things were sacred after all, and besides, she might opt for free agency one day. I knew that when Juanita got home late, it meant business was good, and there'd be extra on the table. She didn't take food stamps or welfare. She was a naturalized citizen and felt it was unpatriotic. Juanita was a businesswoman. An entrepreneur who paid her taxes. It was the American way. I was a street kid, living by my wits, not by my brawn, which was anemic. My friends looked to me for solutions, not muscle. I was clever and dependable, and the neighborhood knew it. By the time I was fifteen, I had saved twelve hundred dollars in small bills running errands for the South Side cartels. I appreciated the value of a dollar and didn't spend foolishly. I stashed my money in two tin cans, one fit into the other providing double thickness. I hid it beneath the welfare housing project in Pilsen, the Latino barrio on Chicago's lower west side where we lived. The rats were my only concern. They were biggest cats eating anything not nailed down. One reason I used double cans... The streets in Pilsen were dangerous for most, but not for me. Danger was a sign of competition between the cartels. I thrived on it. They needed the services of a neutral courier, one who kept his mouth shut and was dependable. They preferred me to a phone call. No record of the transaction if the feds were tapping them. Couriers were expendable. I never argued. I always believed negotiation was better than confrontation. Leave something on the table was my motto. My clients felt feeling good about the deal and good about Magic Slim. For me, a smaller cut of a larger pie made sense. Why risk market share by being greedy? When I turned 18 and decided to leave home, Juanita pushed a crisp $100 bill into my shirt pocket, gave me a big hug, and a kiss, and wish me well, as I boarded that greyhound for Cleveland. For her, it was one less mouth to feed. I never told her about the money under the building. I learned early to trust no one but yourself. Your own mother could be compromised. Going to Cleveland was a gamble, but I figured it was better to be a big fish in a smaller pond. Cleveland was a growing market, largely ignored by the cartels, It was in Cleveland that I would become the most successful pornographic film producer in America. My studio was a key link in a human trafficking supply chain stretching from the former Soviet republics in Eastern Europe to the United States, trafficking accounts for an estimated $32 billion in annual trade, with sex slavery and pornographic film production accounting for the greatest percentage. Market research drove my business. I eliminated all but the most profitable segments of the market, sexual exploitation of minors and pornographic film production. Business was booming. There were two main sources for feeding my chain, Eastern Europe and Latin America. There were others, of course, including Asia and the Middle East, but I didn't have the infrastructure or logistics to support more. If clients wanted to do Asian, I referred them to a house that specialized. My friend, Mr. Chin, ran a quality house and appreciated the referrals. He reciprocated in kind. He didn't manage Latinos or whites. He referred those clients to me. Chin and I understood each other and often compared notes. The girls from Eastern Europe were smuggled across the Canadian border. They were Caucasian underage, and naive. Some were snatched from the streets and schoolyards of Chechnya or Dagestan, while others were sold by destitute parents who couldn't afford them. The mules, or travel agents as I call them, were typically Russian or Kazakh, and would handle all export arrangements. The girls would board tramp steamers as human cargo. They were locked in a dormitory-like stateroom built into the forward hold of the ship. It had a toilet and bunk beds, but no room to walk or stretch. The noise from the ship's engine room was deafening, and the constant smell of diesel fuel, defecation, and vomit kept the ship's crew on deck and away from the girls. When they reached Nova Scotia, they were herded out of the bulkhead at night. They were taken to a vacant dormitory for a quick shower, so their smell wouldn't alert the border guards as they crossed into the U.S. illegally. Once in northern New England, they would be separated according to prearranged destinations. The girls destined for Cleveland would board my large RV with one-way glass. The girls could look out, but no one could look in. The RV was paid for, and it was first class. I wanted my girls to know they were in professional hands. My drivers and their helpers were selected with extreme care. They were carrying valuable cargo, and under no circumstances were they to fraternize with the girls. To do so would provoke my wrath, which often meant the last thing they would ever do. Best in class were advertised in international style magazines with code words. These codes were known only to select clients and certain intermediaries approved by Slim. This elaborate distribution system was part of Slim's business model. His clients paid an annual subscription fee for the online dictionary. Code words and descriptions were revised monthly. An interested client would pay an access fee for further information that included a set of professional photographs, a video, and voice recording of the model addressing the client by name. Should the client accept, a detailed travel itinerary was submitted, calling for first-class travel and accommodation. Slim required a letter of understanding, spelling out terms and conditions and a 50% deposit. He didn't like contracts. His word was his bond. Everyone along the chain knew that. This was a classic value chain with each link making a contribution. My trainers were the best. Most had been, or still were, film stars featured in porn videos. I employed both male and female trainers. Most were bilingual in English and Russian. The women made the girls feel safe. All training classes had male and female instructors and a variety of training aids. They used videos and live demonstrations on technique, in the use of condoms, dildos, and other toys. These classes were behind a two-way wall-length mirror so students could see themselves and make necessary corrections. We taped these training sessions. There was a market for rehearsals, especially in the volume end of the market. Each class of girls was judged strictly on the merits. The fast learners went on to advanced training. They learned proper etiquette, social skills, and party games. They learned how to dress, apply makeup, and discuss world events. These girls were a bit older, 16 to 20, thinking they were 25 to 30. The premium girls were in demand. They never seemed to be enough of them. They were treated like first dates, not hookers, enjoying perks like corporate jets, hotel suites, and luxury yachts. They were expected to talk and act like socialites in public, but behave like porn stars in the bedroom. They learned to love this lifestyle. Most never wanted out. It meant back to the barrios if they were lucky, but more likely meant back to the bottom of the chain for violent abuse at the hands of depraved clients who got off torturing the girls. The others, the girls not as pretty or smart or accepting, the girls who thought too much about going home and resisting training, these were Slim's problem children. At an average age of 14, they would stay in the U.S. where client expectations were less demanding. Pole dancing, lap dancing, and prostitution were legal in Las Vegas, appealing to the convention trade in Japanese tourists. Slim was a full-service supplier. His girls were trained for specific customer demographics. Like Chevrolet versus Cadillac, it's all about price, performance, and style. Slim was the general motors of worldwide traffic. He offered products for every taste and price point. He thought of it as cutting and polishing rough diamonds. Some would be destined for grinding wheels, while others would be featured at Tiffany's. Slim was particular about his vendor's He only did business with those who shared his understanding of quality control. There was an old saying on the street, garbage in, garbage out. Slim would not accept garbage from his vendors. His reputation depended upon it. His supply chain integrity was impeccable. He was selling quality. That meant each link in the chain was important. A classic supply chain, value addition through processing, training, and logistics. Slim's reputation was international. If you wanted to maximize return on investment, you sent your assets to Slim. He wasn't the cheapest, but he was the best. Girls trained in his building were traditionally high earners, and the pimps and video producers were more than willing to pay a premium on the market. They received a good return on their investment.